0: The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, July 31st, 2017 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The president, Donald Trump, has been called an embarrassment, and buffoon, a threat and more presidential than anyone with the exception of the late great Abraham Lincoln. Today, the National Review evoked Glengarry Gary Glenn Ross and said he was, quote, sad old Shelley Levine who cannot close the deal who spends his nights whining about the unfairness of it all. Yeah, Shelley the Machine Levine, the guy who was always chasing but never accomplishing. Here's the inspiration for the salesman character Gil from The Simpsons. Imagine Trump making this call to Ivanka after the last healthcare debacle. Honey, you should have seen me with my last customer. I No, but I came so close. So Trump is certainly a showman, a braggart, and a failure. Oh, And the greatest jobs president God ever created, that has been said about him too. But sometimes when I think of Donald Trump, I don't think of him in those terms. At either end of a continuum between nefarious and greatness, self-identify greatness. To me, he's like a fascinating puzzle. He's a thought exercise. He's a Zen cone. For instance, if a president pardons himself for wrongdoing, can it be said then that the president did wrong? And if the answer is that the president did do wrong... Would it be wrong for him to pardon himself for pardoning himself? Does it get less wrong till he pardons himself for pardoning himself for pardoning himself? Eventually, it won't be wrong at all. And can a president say that Mueller's team of investigators are biased because they donated to members of the party that the president isn't a member of? Can he say that if the president also donated heavily to the party that he is not a member of, bragged about it? Now, if you say that the president is biased for making that charge. Well, remember, the president did donate to Democrats. So what you're saying is that donating to Democrats makes this guy biased, which is his exact accusation regarding the investigators. So if he's wrong, he's right. And if he's right, hey, let's stop right there. The guy's right. What we're saying is there's no way for the president to be anything but right. And then there's Jeff Sessions. Senator Ben Sass said the Senate will not be seating a replacement if Sessions is removed as attorney general. Lindsey Graham agrees. That's two Republicans. Susan Collins was asked about removing Jeff Sessions on Meet the Press. The attorney general made absolutely the right decision to recuse himself from the Russian investigation. He consulted with the career staff and he followed the exact guidelines of the uh, Justice Department. So for him to be criticized for the decision to remove himself from the investigation, Mm -hmm. I just don't think is right. So up to three Republicans. And then on Face the Nation, Senator Dianne Feinstein was asked about removing Sessions. Now, she's a Democrat, but her answer cited a fourth Republican. Well, Chairman Grassley has uh, put the bit between his teeth and said that there will be no hearings, Mr. President, if you go ahead and fire Jeff Sessions. But here's the question. If you fire the guy who heads justice because he chose not to obstruct justice, isn't that an obstruction of justice? But let's say you fire the head of justice. And then, of course, we've got to fire the deputy head of justice and maybe the woman under him. So pretty soon, there will be no Department of Justice. And if at that point there ceases to be justice, then how can you be said to obstruct justice? So again, we've proven that whatever Trump does, he will wind up being right. And again, what is the sound of one hand clapping? Know this, it's Scaramucci's hand. And with the other, he's making a gesture. You see the problem. On the show today, I spiel about no Confederate. No, yeah, yeah, no, no Confederate. But first, a few years ago, news came out that Phil Ivey, the world's greatest poker player and a mysterious female companion, were in a legal fight with a casino. At issue was the casino's contention that Ivey had cheated, not at poker, but at Baccarat. And even more interesting... The way he cheated was just to ask the dealer to move the cards in a certain way. She did, and they called that cheating. ESPN's new 30 for 30 podcast dove in and found a subculture, an underworld, I don't know, some strange schemes. Reporter Rose Eveleth is here to talk about a queen of sorts. <music> When the best poker player in the world showed up at a London casino wanting to gamble, high stakes, not that unusual. That he was accompanied by a beautiful Asian woman, not that unusual. That he asked to play Baccarat, well, that's the high stakes game. That he requested several unusual accommodations, actually not that unusual. Baccarat players are notoriously quirky. But you add it all up and you have Phil Ivey, that best poker player in the world, walking out with millions of dollars. That was maybe a little unusual, at least the casino thought. This is the subject of a new 30 for 30 podcast called The Queen of Sorts. And the queen is that mysterious Asian woman who we referenced. Rose Eveleth did the podcast, narrated and reported the podcast for ESPN. Hello. Hello, Rose. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? When did you first hear about this?
1: I had been following the story in 2012 a little bit, and I kept seeing mysterious female accomplice. And to me, that's like, ding, you know, like anytime those words show up, I am yeah. interested. Um, and so when it actually, we were talking about story ideas for 30 for 30, I was like, what? Can we can we try to find out who this person is? And it turns out that someone had written a little bit about her in the New York Times and I called him and he was able to connect me with her. But yeah, I mean, anytime there's like a mysterious lady who's actually the mastermind behind something, I am like all in.
0: And who she is is Kelly Sun. So who is Kelly Sun?
1: Kelly Sun is a gambler. She's an advantage player. She lives in Vegas. Which means? Advantage player players are people like it who, sounds, but yeah. yeah, I mean, so you and I, I don't, yeah. well, actually, I don't know. Maybe you're an advantage player. <laughs> I I would be maybe considered uh, just a regular gambler, maybe a sucker, someone who loses money.
0: A mark, a profit center, yeah. a, you know, regular American citizen you know, looking to pursue gambling. Exactly.
1: Yeah. I lose money at mm-hmm. casinos. Um, an advantage player is someone who's figured out some way to turn the odds in their favor, right? The classic thing is the house always wins because there is a house edge. Um, advantage players figure out ways to turn the odds to them. And that's anything from knowing when a slot machine is supposed to cash out and just sitting there and like getting it or, you know, counting cards is probably the most famous advantage play. But there's all kinds of advantage plays.
0: Right. And advantage plays are discouraged by casinos to the point of oftentimes by letter of the law, either made illegal uh, by the law or just against casino rules. But there are some versions of advantage play, either that the casinos aren't aware of or that there are no rules about them. And you maybe can get away with them.
1: It's like a cat and mouse game, right?
0: Yeah. Okay, so let's for a second we have to to talk about what Kelly Sun's methods are. It's called edge sorting. I have in my hand a deck of cards, and I notice that if you look at well, you tell me if you look at one side of the card, it looks different from the other side. Yeah. Is that so
1: on these ones that we have, on one side of the card, the diamond is cut off about in half. It's a
0: diamond pattern on diamond back patterns, of the card. Yeah. yeah.
1: And on the other side of the card, the diamonds are full.
0: Mm-hmm. So I see.
1: You can see yeah. it. It's pretty easy to see once it's pointed out to you. Although if you shuffle the cards, I always sort of lose it.
0: Yeah. the, car- the On the right, I mean, I'm, cards are symmetrical, but I'm holding this one. On the right, it's all white. Everything touching the edge of the card is white. It's the white part of the diamond. It's a blue and white card. But on the other side, it's all blue. Pretty simple.
1: If you know how to see that, you can then basically sort the cards into two groups. You can say I want all of the white sides on one side and I want all of the, the blue sides if they're not valuable cards. So
0: you could define two groups however you want and for Baccarat, what's the what are sevens, the sevens, eights and
1: nines are the lucky cards? everything else unlucky.
0: Okay, so you, so then she knows when a seven, eight or a nine is gonna hit she could bet accordingly because of this edge sorting. And that gives her what advantage? How big an advantage? 6% edge. And 6% is huge. Huge. Even though we have defined edge sorting and we know that Kelly knows how to see these cards, which is, you need good vision. Um, Magicians taught you a little bit about this, right? So how would a magician use it?
1: So edge sorting is a classic magic trick. If you ever had a magician say, pick a card, any card, you pick your card, you look at it. While you are looking at that card, the magician rotates their deck 180 degrees. You put your card back in and when they look at their deck again, your card is the only one that is facing that one direction. Right. And that's how they know. So
0: that so there's one card where it's white on the right, the rest of them are blue on the white. I get that. But everything you've said, the magician is handling the cards and in Mini Baccarat, the player can't touch the card. So how did Kelly use her knowledge of edge sorting to actually get the cards to turn? Actual magic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> is that she managed to convince the dealer to do it for her so edge sorting is impressive but the actual impressive thing about this scheme is that she convinced a dealer to when she said hey that's a lucky card to turn it one way and when she said "Eh, it's not a lucky card to turn it a different way so she did it sort of north south east west to kind of get those edges rotated um, and the dealer did it and that's the part where it's like what
0: yeah and and the reason that the casino would allow such a bizarre thing to happen is that baccarat players are bizarre. Second reason is they were playing for how much money?
1: So, um Phil Ivey had wired a million pounds to this casino in Cro- uh, Cro- in London called Crockfords. Once they got the deck sorted, they were betting $150,000 a hand.
0: Yeah. And making how much? How much were they walking out of? They
1: walk with? out with twelve million dollars on
0: paper. Cause on they paper, weren't paid at the Correct. time, and that becomes an issue.
1: Yes, yeah. um, and you know also you have Phil Ivey sitting next to you. Yes. Phil Ivey is the most famous poker player in the world, probably. Phil Ivey. That's true. Pretty hard guy to say no to. If you're the dealer who says no to a request that Phil Ivey makes and he leaves, then you have to answer to your boss for why Phil Ivey is no longer in your casino. Right. And
0: the deal with Phil Ivey and why the casinos want him isn't so much that he's famous. He has a reputation for losing a lot of money in games that aren't poker.
1: Which is very smart of him because I would suspect, I suspect, and many other people suspect that he's not really losing that money in the way that casinos think that he is. So Mm -hmm. casinos think he walks in and just drops millions and doesn't care. Phil Ivey has a whole bunch of things going on behind the scenes. He's got loss rebates. He's got all this other stuff that basically say that, oh, if you lose this much, we'll pay you back some of it. Yeah. And you can work those schemes to actually wind up making money. I think Phil has a lot of things going on that are not quite...
0: Right. Or you might just want to, in poker terminology, you know, show weakness, have exactly. strength. He might, he might have been working on this for quite a while. Put the reputation out there that he's a mark when it comes to Baccarat and then cash in uh, with this one twelve million dollar payday, but there were others because he hit other. Yes. he and Kelly hit other casinos too.
1: Yeah, they hit a handful. So they hit a casino in Australia. They hit the Borgata in Atlantic City four different times, and they never figured out what was going on. For I think it was nine point two million total. Um, wow. They hit Crockford's. They've hit other casinos as well who caught them, but didn't. They basically were like, "Okay, we figured out what you're doing. Don't come back."
0: The the counter argument to maybe Phil Ivey is a bad gambler. You ever hear of Stu Unger? Mm-hmm. So Stu Unger was prop before Phil Ivey, one of the most famous one of the best poker players in the world but when it came to anything else was the most degenerative gambler and he died early penniless even though he could not lose money in poker practically he couldn't make a cent on the horses on Baccarat on other things and there's a lot of stories about great poker players who are terrible at table games
1: I mean- Also Baccarat's a game of chance. It's not a game of skill. It should be right when you're not playing with Kelly. So I mean like craps, right? Like these are games that you know the casinos also think like, well you can't this is not a skill game. So it doesn't matter.
0: Yeah. How so they the this team leaves the casino on paper uh, or by credit? They're supposed to have millions of dollars. Then the casino says, no, we're not going to pay you. How do they pursue that case? Why Why can they withhold payment?
1: So Crockford's has a policy that is pretty common among many casinos. It basically says if you win over a certain amount of money, we review just mm-hmm. to see. And sometimes there's nothing going on. You got lucky. And they did. I mean, they had an edge, but they also got very, very lucky. Um, and so they reviewed the footage. They basically figure out what's going on. Some very Poor man has to call Phil Ivey and tell him that he's not getting his money. Um, That phone call was detailed in the court case, and there was a lot of cursing in it. Yeah. Phil was not happy. Um, but basically, they say, you know, you we're a private club. You violated the rules of our private club club by doing this, and we're not going to pay you. Um, Phil doesn't like that answer, and he sued Crockford to try to get his money. Um, the Borgata, actually, once once Crockford's publicly said they weren't paying, the Borgata realized they had actually fallen Yeah, and this, this goes
0: out, and there are tipsters among the casino surveillance community, yeah. and they're telling people about the, this scam. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, so casino surveillance is a pretty small world, um, and you'd think that they would actually have already known about this because... Kelly had been doing this before Phil right. for about a year, and the Borgata in Atlantic City decides that you know, hey, we want our money back. So they'd actually already paid Phil. They Phil got his money, and the Borgata was like, "We want you to pay us back," which to me is a little, pretty funny.
0: Yeah. Well, what happened with the Crockford's case? So
1: the Crockford's case, Phil lost. Um, The English
0: court. English court in
1: London. Um, The case is really interesting because there's also clearly sort of an undercurrent of like, oh, this American guy comes into our casino and thinks he can do whatever he wants and all of that. Um, He loses. He appealed at the UK Supreme Court, which actually is still pending. And the next two to three months, there should be a decision. And that will be a final decision in London. He also lost in New Jersey, a judge, said that he had to pay the money back.
0: But Borgata is not a private club. What argument did they pursue? So
1: this is Great. This is you'll appreciate this. The decision in the New Jersey case is um, very tortured. Basically, the judge said that in New Jersey, gambling is only legal to make money for the state. And so anything that you do to tip the odds in your favor is therefore illegal because the only reason that gambling is legal is so that the state can make money.
0: Uh Uh-huh. So wait, does that mean if you ever split eights in blackjack, which is the smart thing to do, you're breaking the law?
1: That's the question. If a dealer is drunk and showing you their whole card, is yeah. that now illegal?
0: Yeah. Okay. That's terrible logic. <laughs> <laughs> but I do understand. It, I would. It wouldn't surprise me if that, in some rule of a casino that you walk past in the door, there's some phrase that says anything other than playing this as a game of chance is against our rules.
1: Yeah. I mean. So what Phil and Kelly would argue is that if you, a- if I ask the casino for something, and and this is actually something that. Some of the surveillance guys have said, too, if you ask the casino to change their procedures for you and yeah. they say yes, that and is now their yes. procedure.
0: Yeah, that, they that,
1: have that. said yes. It's not like you're sneakily doing something they don't know about. Yeah. You asked for all of these things and they said yes.
0: Yeah, right. It's pretty good. I mean, for a casino, because anytime you accommodate a request, right, if the person loses, n- no big deal. If The person wins. It's like, well, I changed my rules for you. I get my money back. That's crazy. Although I would say, do you th- what do you think? I mean, there was a part in the podcast where different experts weighed in as to if they cheated. Do you think they cheated?
1: I don't think they cheated. Um, I think that the casinos, it's hard for me to have a lot of sympathy for casinos in general. Mm-hmm. I also think that if, you have surveillance people watching this game. I understand why a dealer might not be able to in the moment say no to something. But you have people who are watching. And actually, in Crockford's, they have audio recording on all of their tables. So you can hear them speaking as well. And they saw this happen for hours and hours and hours. And they never said, hey, stop. Yeah. To me, the analogy that um, that I've been using, which is not a great analogy, but it's let's say you're at a store and something is marked the wrong price. Are you stealing if you take it at the lower price, if you pay for it at the lower price? Well, what
0: if you ask the, uh, the, the checkout person, person. well, what if you ask the person who's stocking shelves, Hey, could you switch those prices? And they say, yes, is that stealing? Yes, it is. I think by by letter of the law, it's stealing. And I think it probably should be.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe, but I think that like, if you have a procedure and you say, this is what our game is. And then you say, okay, we're willing to change our game for you. They would have taken his money quite happily. Yeah. But they're not going to give it. See
0: the thing, here's the thing. It looks like a game, we think of it as a game, it sells itself as a game, it's not a game. What right? is it? It's a money-making operation for the casino. So it's like the stock market. It's suppo- No, I, the, the, there it's less. I mean, casinos are less than a zero-sum game for the players. Stock market are uh, positive for the players. I would say it's just, it's exactly like I went to the movies and I lost my seven bucks. Well, you didn't lose your seven bucks. You got to see a movie. And casinos would say, you didn't lose whatever money. You got to enjoy the thrill of gambling. And some of the enjoyment is the possibility that you win or that some people win. But they could write the rule pretty much However, they want. So, I don't think they cheated at the game of Baccarat. I think, though, that the casinos, I understand why the casinos would be in their rights to say basically any reason that's any deviation from the rules means you don't get to keep your money. And it doesn't matter when we tell you about this. And it doesn't matter. Even if they said yes. Yeah, obviously. And they put themselves in a bad position. I mean, I wouldn't think that how they did their thing was, uh, you know, by the best practices. It does suck. Um, It does suck for the players. But I think that if you asked Kelly and Phil, look, you're going to do this. And in the uh, surveillance room, they're going to figure out what you're doing. Do you think you're going to be able to walk out of there with money? They would say no at that point. So it's interesting.
1: Um, Kelly wanted Phil to stop because basically she knows that if you win too much money, they do they, they won't cash you out. And this has yeah. happened to her before without Phil. So she would say, oh, let's only win a couple million here, a couple million there. It doesn't really, like, trigger that thing. And Phil is like, I'm Phil Ivey. Yeah, like, No one's going to not... Me. But so let's say that Phil and Kelly come up with like a bad scheme. They go in, they lose money. They get the casino to change their policy, and they say, "Well, we've lost money." Do they then say, "Well, give us the money back because you changed your policy?" So this whole thing is moot.
0: No, because in my analogy, it's not really a game; <laughs> it's an entertainment, and they and the so casino. You, you
1: put in your million dollar entertainment.
0: The casino bill. gets to define the entertainment however they want. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you, you should call. I haven't heard that one before. So that you should call up the casinos and offer that as a. But
0: they're winning in court without me. <laughs> <laughs> Although this New Jersey decision doesn't seem that. I think they're solid. probably
1: going to lose the appeal. Or they might win the appeal on the New Jersey decision. There's a lot of things in that case that I don't. Quite a sniff test to yeah. me. Um,
0: also, didn't he get like millions of dollars worth of comps out of that?
1: Yeah, I mean, he gets millions <laughs> of dollars worth of comps no matter what, right? He yeah, goes he doesn't anywhere. have to
0: return the comps. I no, I don't remember I don't that I think so. Yeah. He got to keep his. Yeah, he got of, to
1: keep. He got yeah. to keep it. They're also actually the Borgata is also suing the manufacturers of the cards, saying like, "Hey, you gave us faulty cards." I mean, they're suing everybody. They want all their. <laughs> they want everything. You know,
0: <laughs> faulty cards. So Kelly, this scheme, this advantage, is now lost to her. She can't play this anywhere.
1: Well, that's not true. She. She plays still, she does this still. Um she can't play with Phil anymore, obviously. Yeah. But because Phil has been the face of all these cases and Phil's the famous one, a lot of places still don't know who Kelly is. So I was in Vegas doing a reporting on this and I got to sit in on a um a surveillance class that this guy was teaching. And these are ostensibly like the good people who go to trainings to like be better at their jobs as surveillance people in casinos. And he put up Kelly's photo and he said, you know, like do you guys know who this person is? And mo- they did not. Yeah. So even though she should, in theory, be on the wall of every casino surveillance room, being like, "Don't let this lady right, in," right. she's not. And so she actually, when I went to see her, had just come back from scoping out a couple casinos in the U.S. to kind of like go to. She still plays in Macau. She still she still does this. She just uses different whales. She uses different people.
0: So she and she's living large. She's doing well. Yeah. Although when she was losing, her dad was monitoring, wiring her a lot of money so we couldn't.
1: Yeah. I mean, also, Kelly, you know, some sort of like Philly, Kelly likes to play. You know, she will go in and she will lose money at Baccarat. Like she, you know, she's allowed to play on the strip. People even who know who she is, they let her play Baccarat, but they know they won't let her do this thing and she'll just lose money. So it's interesting. I'm not quite sure exactly what the state of her finances are. Her house is nice. Um, She has all these shoes. But, you know she's not winning these huge sums anymore and also sometimes they did lose you know just because you have the edge doesn't mean you necessarily win so she did lose a couple million a couple times at various places because they got unlucky
0: yeah so that those are the places i would guess she would have to hit next (laughs) to get at least back to even rose eveleth is the reporter behind the 30 for 30 podcast the queen of sorts thank you rose thanks for having me And now the spiel. Last night, the hashtag no confederate trended on Twitter, which is exactly the sort of place you'd want your hashtag to trend. I, staunch opposer of the confederacy at first, thought that this was a good thing. But then I realized what it was, was the creator of Oscar So White attempting to point to an announced HBO show and strangle it in the crib. The premise of the show is what if the South didn't lose the Civil War it's 2017, what would the implications be? The concern is that the series, which was only announced as an idea, would be so unavoidably racist and offensive that progressive people everywhere should band together to make sure that the inevitably harmful ideas that the show is guaranteed to contain shall never see the light of day. Ideally, before the show is even a show, people of goodwill would thwart any effort to assemble a writer's room that might punch up those ideas into something worthy or interesting. Or even before that, if you're on the side of goodness, you would want to forestall any brainstorming session that could inform a writer's room that could possibly breathe any version of those ideas into production because that might cause the ideas to be seen by people who pay for the privilege of seeing them, which would, of course, and without doubt, set society back because the ideas are so inherently terrible. In this alternative reality where the South didn't lose the Civil War, some version of slavery would exist. How would that change things? What might be the resonances with the actual world? No, do not allow your imagination to ponder those questions as that idea in the wrong hands or the wrong mind, possibly your mind, would set us all back. The organizers of the No Confederate campaign have defined in the wrong hands as being the hands of the creators of Game of Thrones. They were two of the announced executive producers of the new series Confederate. The case against them is that they are white. A further case against them in certain circles is that Game of Thrones has a horribly backward or at least problematic, view of race and sex. The race part was exemplified in a tweet by the nerds of color, a campaign supporter. There was a photo of a scene from Game of Thrones where a blonde-haired woman is held aloft by hundreds of darker-skinned people. This is because one plot point of Game of Thrones engaged in the white savior trope wherein a white woman freed slaves. That's true. That happened. There are many, many, many other plot points that are interesting and genuinely progressive and consider races and prejudices and otherness, but put that aside. Game of Thrones also has illusions and scenes of rape alongside illusions and depictions of murder, child killing, all manner of degradation, but portrayals of rape are more harmful than other depictions of violence. It is said, though I am not aware of any social science that backs this up, as a viewer, I can also say that Game of Thrones frequently leads me to consider real-world analogs to ponder the nature of man and woman relationships and power. It's the most popular show in HBO history, and whereas the no-confederate crowd think the Game of Thrones guys, Ben Hoff and Weiss, are ill-equipped to deal with sensitive material, I would think, as HBO thought, that they're spectacularly equipped to tackle an interesting and provocative alternative history of the United States. But that is only part of the story because what the protesters left out or largely glossed over is that the new HBO show Confederate, should it ever become a show, has two other producers announced in the same press release that the world learned about Confederate. Their names are Malcolm And Nichelle Tramble Spellman, husband and wife, they have great credentials, him, Empire, her, the good wife, to name two recent gigs. And beyond resumes, they're really brilliant voices. The presence of whom makes this show for me must see TV. Unless No Confederate gets its way. The backers of No Confederate say that theirs is a protest that's not about silencing art. It's about sending a message to a corporation. And what is this message? The message is that this piece of art should not be made. Rudy Giuliani wasn't censoring art. He was just defunding that museum. I remember when The Last Temptation of Christ came out, there were protests by Christians. And so many Christians were interviewed on the news. And, you know, well, here's a guy on the Oprah Winfrey show at the time asking the audience. How many of you have seen the movie that we're talking about? Very few saw it in the audience. The Reverend Donald Wildman was there. He said he read the script. No one's even read the script of Confederate, because the script doesn't exist yet. I remember how I thought about The Last Temptation of Christ at the time. If you were alive, you probably agreed with me. You thought something like, one, uh, this is America. Scorsese can make whatever movie he wants. Two, if you don't like it, don't watch it or make an intellectual rebuttal. Don't try to pressure theaters into taking it off or silencing it. And three, you guys haven't even seen the movie yet? That's ridiculous. But with Confederate, the idea is so sure to further prejudice that it must be prejudged as unacceptable. What does the organizer of the No Confederate Campaign, a woman named April Rain, think of waiting and seeing what the content of this show is? She said, quote, Wait and see is what we were told about the Trump administration. A, I think we all pretty much knew Trump would be a disaster. B, you have just advanced an argument for rushing to judgment in all situations. Great job. Look, I know there's a scenario in which a corporation announces an idea paired with a creator or a star that definitely sets off alarm bells. Dog the bounty hunter does Othello, non-starter for me, no matter what AMC might argue. So yeah, a lot of your opinion into this controversy is and comes down to, are the creators so unqualified, are Ben Hoffman Weiss and the two Spellmans so unqualified and is the idea so inherently unconscionable as to override other considerations? Because there are competing values here. To stifle a work before it starts has costs, doesn't it? Two prominent black writers will be denied a high-profile job and a high-profile voice, one that may, knowing the creators involved, probably will be really interesting. I just hate an attempt to stifle artistic expression before it can even come to be in the name of some nobler cause. I loathe advancing the fiction that because HBO is involved, it's not art, it's only commerce. I'm utterly unconvinced to the point of boredom by the argument that only people of one race can ever tell the story of members of that race. And even if I wasn't bored and repelled by that notion, the notion doesn't apply here if you honestly consider half the creative team of Confederate. Bottom line, the idea of shutting down ideas as bad ideas before they're even ideas is a bad idea. That's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson cannot count into a four-deck shoe, but she always remembers to wear shoes on the deck for health reasons. The Eye in the Sky caught Just producer Chris Berube counting cards. Oh, oh, no, not Casino Security. The Alan Parsons song, Eye in the Sky. Alan Parsons, former pit boss. Little known fact. Steve Lictia is executive producer of Slate Podcast. He is no stranger to shuffle tracking and card holing. He's also a known melon baller and whale rider, putting him on the band list at several golden nuggets. The gist. We once served time inside the jail at the Luxor. Technically, it was Carrot Top's 9 p.m. show. Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening.